Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. I was recently invited to join the Parthenon Podcast Network, and I'm pleased to announce that History of North America is the newest addition to the Parthenon family, a proud member of the Salem Web Network. Parthenon is a podcast group featuring thought-provoking, entertaining shows about history that's excited to play a part in adding more inspiration to your life. Parthenon is the premier network for shows about history that make listeners examine the story of humanity on a much deeper level by connecting the stories of the past with the most important issues of the present. Let's sample a taste of what this eclectic collection of podcasts has to offer with an episode of the Key Battles of American History podcast with James Early. Welcome to Key Battles of World War II in Europe, our 10,000-foot survey of the Second World War in Europe and the areas around it. I'm your host, James Early, as always, and my co-host once again is Sean McIver. Now, the European theater of the Second World War is an incredibly complex topic. The root causes of the war go all the way back to the First World War, if not earlier. And in order to fully understand the war, we can't just start with the German invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939. We have to go further back than that. So in the first few episodes, Sean and I will narrate the key events in Europe between the world wars. We will begin with the very end of World War I. All right, Sean, we're embarking on a major task here. Are you ready for this? Yeah, yep, I am. And, you know, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And so we've kind of, we've got to fly at high altitude on this one. We are, yes. Listener, I, just so you'll know, we're not going to go into all the nitty gritty and this is not going to be a 200, 300 episode podcast. There certainly are those out there. There's several good World War II podcasts where they do go into great detail. And But that's not us. We're giving an, a purposely, deliberately giving a high-flying overview. So let's begin. At 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, for the first time in four years and three months and two weeks, warfare that was more savage, bloody, and destructive than any the world had ever known stopped. At its height, the Great War, or the World War as it was called at the time, encompassed fighting and killing, often along static lines and fought over yards and feet of ground, rather than miles, from the Belgian coast of the English Channel to Switzerland, across Alpine ranges, throughout the troubled Balkan states, through the forests and plains of Poland, Galatia, Silesia, and Prussia, in the Caucasus Mountains, and in the Holy Land, Levant, and Arabia in the Middle East. Fighting waged on the high seas and below it, in the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Indian Oceans, as well as in the Mediterranean, Black, and Baltic Seas. And even in the very skies above, colonial powers battled in Africa and in China, and the nations of the Old World and the New saw themselves drawn into the conflagration. The death toll was staggering, with some estimates coming in as high as over 40 million casualties, including 10 million military dead and 20 million soldiers wounded. There were more than 10 million direct civilian casualties in the war, and there was several great calamities that resulted directly from the war itself, including the 1918 and 1920 influenza pandemic, the Armenian genocide in Turkey, and the wartime famines that affected nations occupied by the enemy powers. This staggering number also does not account for the tens of millions killed or who perished in the Russian Revolution and Civil War, 
which was another direct outcome of the direct of the Great War. It was aptly described by American author Ernest Hemingway, who had served as an ambulance driver during the war, when he said it was the most colossal, murderous, mismanaged butchery that has ever taken place on Earth. Now, when the fighting ceased and the guns stopped firing, the feeling among the Allies, that is the UK, France, and the United States, Italy, Japan, Belgium, Luxembourg, Greece, and the exiled Serbian government, was exhilaration for some of the victors, but stunned and weary relief for the majority. For the defeated Central Powers, including Germany, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, and Bulgaria, there was far less excitement. There was confusion, shock, resignation, and dismay among all parties because the ending had come so swiftly, all out of proportion for what had gone on before. This war had involved an initial few months of war of maneuver. Static fronts then evolved in the form of thousands of miles of trenches and stayed that way for nearly four years with little movement, only brutal bloodshed and misery. In 1917, after mismanagement, stalemate, and horrendous privation, the Russian Empire, which was one of the Allied powers, collapsed into revolution. And by October of that year, the communists had taken power and had withdrawn from the war, just as the United States of America was finally drawn into the conflict by the unrestricted submarine warfare campaign conducted by Germany to try to starve out the British from the war. Germany sought to strike fast to finally win the war on the ground, before American forces reached Europe in sufficient numbers, and they did break through the static lines and once again threatened Paris in the spring of 1917. However, the French, British, and the first newly arrived American troops stopped the German advance near Paris, which was not far from where they turned them back in 1914. By late summer, the Allied forces were ready to launch their own offensive across all fronts, and it was clear that the Central Powers had nothing left in the tank. Now, among the Central Powers, Bulgaria was the first to fall, seeking an armistice in late September when their front in Macedonia collapsed. Ottoman Turkey, capitalized in late October after a British and Arabian offensive, routed Turkish forces in Palestine. The Austrian Empire, already teetering on the brink of defeat, reeled before a massive Italian, British, and French offensive and sued for peace on November 3rd. German lines on the Western Front had been broken in September by huge offenses by French, British, and especially by American troops, and their forces were being steadily pushed back toward the German borders. It was this steady defeat that ultimately broke the nerve of the German civilian and military leadership and caused them to seek terms with the Allies for an armistice to stop the fighting. Allied leadership ultimately offered them the terms that amounted to unconditional surrender. Germany had no choice but to accept. Now, almost from the beginning of the armistice, the peace was an uneasy and flawed one, and it only got worse as it was formalized. Initially, as part of the terms of the armistice, German troops had to surrender their weapons and were to retreat from the occupied territories in Belgium, Luxembourg, Romania, and even from the Alsace-Lorraine regions, which Germany had taken from France after their 1870 war. Allied troops occupied the industrial and defensive regions in the Saar and the Rhineland, The German high sea fleet, as well as all submarines, were interred by the British Navy, and its air force was grounded. Austria and Turkey suffered similar occupations, and both empires collapsed and were broken into component parts, or in Turkey's case, large parts of territory seized by the Allies. Germany itself lost its emperor as Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated and fled to Holland, allowing a new republic to form in Germany. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. The peace treaty negotiations at Versailles in France, which stretched from January to July of 1919, were long and painful for the Germans. It was clear that Despite the lofty goals of American President Woodrow Wilson to build a peace without victory, the French especially intended to extract a huge measure of vengeance on Germany to create what economist John Maynard Keynes called a Carthaginian peace designed to break Germany to the extent that they would, this is Keynes, quote, undo what since 1870 the progress of Germany had accomplished, end quote. France wanted a Germany that could never threaten her again and they wanted guarantees from her allies that it would stay that way. Britain, on the other hand, favored a just peace that would make Germany pay for its part in causing the war and make sure that Germany did not ever threaten it on the seas. But they wanted an economically viable trading partner. American President Woodrow Wilson had idealized ideas of liberty and self-determination, and he wanted a new global, or at least a European order, to ensure that peace was kept for the world. But he was sadly out of touch with what his countrymen back home wanted out of his treaty with unfortunate long-term consequences. And I'm going to throw in a a shameless self-plug here. If you want to learn more about World War I, you can listen to a podcast that I did with Scott Rank a couple years ago called Key Battles of World War I. It's It's an independent podcast. It's not part of Key Battles of American History but it's limited in length. I think there's about 25 episodes. So we go into much more detail in that podcast about World War I. And a fine podcast it is. We even talked about- Oh, thank you, Sean. You're very kind. Yeah. You and I even talked about some World War I movies last year. We Uh, did. That's right. Yes, Sean and I, in this podcast, that was the first series we had in uh, this podcast was movies like uh, Sergeant York, All Quiet on the Western Front, Paths of Glory. So check that out too, listener, if you haven't already. If you, if you're into movies and if you really want to get some idea of Hollywood's take on World War One. In the end, Germany, which was racked already with socialist and communist uprisings and a completely wrecked economy, was forced to accept the Treaty of Versailles on June 28, 1919. They had already disarmed, and so if they wanted to restart the war, they'd be at a definite disadvantage. This was the fifth anniversary to the day of the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, which was the event that had started this whole sorry mess. The treaty required Germany to accept sole and principal blame for the entire war. It stripped away the Alsatian-Lorraine and returned them to France. Germany had to recognize the independence of Poland and the new Republic of Czechoslovakia, which was to its south, and they ceded parts of Upper Silesia, which is a part of central Germany, to Poland as a corridor to the Baltic Sea. East and West Prussia were separated by this corridor. Other small territories were ceded to Belgium, Czechoslovakia, and Denmark. Germany's African uh, possessions were handed over to the new League of Nations, but they were mostly taken over by Britain and South Africa, while their possessions in the Central Pacific and its treaty port in China were taken over by Japan. 
in South Pacific, possessions were taken over by Australia. And as we saw in your key battles of history of World War II series, James. Yeah, the Pacific War. Pacific War, that is a, the Central Pacific and the South Pacific uh, German possessions. There's a reason why the island is, you know, the Bismarck Sea is called such because the yeah. controlled that part of of the Pacific. So be a very important part of the Pacific theater of the next war. Yeah, it's the beginning of the Japanese Empire. Yes. And the Japanese developed a policy of we just want our islands that we have now and the islands that are right next to them. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that, listener. Anyway, all right, back to Germany. The German army was restricted to no more than 100,000 active troops, which is way less than it had in World War One, And its general staff was dissolved and banned. The Navy was restricted in size to six old battleships. A few cruisers and destroyers and submarines were expressly forbidden. The submarines had been a major thorn in the British and Allied side all throughout World War I, so they're gonna, we're going to just do away with submarines. I'm sure that's going to work great. Anyway, the Air Force was prohibited as well. The Rhineland was to be completely demilitarized, and all fortifications within 30 miles of the river were to be demolished. All stocks of weapons were ordered destroyed or decommissioned. The Rhineland and Saar regions would also be occupied by the Allies for another 15 years. That's tough. It was Article 231 that was ultimately the most onerous. I love that word, onerous. And it had the most long-term consequences. The treaty required Germany to pay initially 226 billion gold marks, or nearly a trillion dollars today. The amount was negotiated down, though, to only 132 billion gold marks, which is today about $500 billion. Jump change. Yeah. Well, yeah, in all, the treaty of the effect of the Treaty of Versailles was not one of triumph, but disappointment, resentment, and bitterness from all parties, except for those who were just completely delusional. Wilson hailed it as a triumph, but may have fallen into that latter camp. In the United States Senate, which was now controlled by the Republican Party, which Wilson was a Democrat, they refused to ratify the treaty, and the American public, disgusted with what they saw as European politics as usual, withdrew into an isolationist stance. The British public were dismayed by French vindictiveness and the harshness of the treaty terms. In France, there was celebration and satisfaction by the public, but more sober heads could see the failings of the treaty. Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who was... Is it Foch or Foch? Foch. Foch, okay. Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who had been the supreme commander at the end of the war and argued for actually more punitive measures against the Germans, did observe, quote, this is not peace. It is an armistice for 20 years. Pretty priestly. Ah, a man with the gift of prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you didn't have to be a prophet to see that coming. Yeah. Well, anyway, for Germany, it was one more blow to bear, one of many, for a country that had suffered catastrophic defeat, seeing the outlawing of a significant portion of their economy that is the military sector, and was fighting for its life against internal revolution, it is difficult to see how anyone could have expected Germany to conceivably meet these terms. Within just a few years, they could make few payments, so France expanded their occupation to include the industrial heartland of the Ruhr in 1923. And, in some cases, they simply shipped entire factories and raw materials back to France. Eventually, the British negotiated a new payment plan for the Germans, which would enable them to pay between 1 and 2 billion marks per year. These payments to Britain and France would come in the form of loans from the United States and from Britain, 
who was already paying back loans to the United States for her own war debt. In 1929, another plan was developed, which would let Germany make reparations through repayments through 1988. But again, American loans went to Germany to pay for her reparations. Winston Churchill, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1924 to 1925, is sort of like the Secretary of the Treasury in the United Kingdom. He later wrote that he personally oversaw these exchanges in which he received promissory notes from millions of marks issued to Germany by United States bankers, which were handed to Britain and then sent back along to the United States government. He stated in the gathering storm that, quote, during the three years, 1926 to 1929, the United States was receiving back in the form of debt installment indemnities from all quarters about one-fifth of the money which she was lending to Germany with no chance of repayment. However, everybody seemed pleased and appeared to think that this might go on forever, end quote. And Churchill went on to state, quote, History will characterize all these transactions as insane. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. Join me next time as we resume our regular series narrative. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.